All right. How are we doing, church? Doing good? All right, you sound good. If you got your Bible, and I hope you do, uh, go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Uh, we are in week two of this, this Christmas series called Unexpected Hope. And the big question that I want to ask you today to deal with is where do you put your hope? And when we talk about hope, biblically is different than the way we use the word hope. We, usually when we say hope, we, we mean like I wish, like I, I hope I can, you know, somebody comes here for Christmas, or I hope my team wins, or something like that. When the Bible talks about hope, <clears throat> it means it's an expectation that a deep desire will be met. That hope, biblically, is a, an expectation that a deep desire will be met. And our hope for you this season is that you would encounter the unexpected hope that you find when you come face to face with Jesus. So what we're doing over this series is we're looking at face-to-face encounters that people had with Jesus and the hope that they find in Him. You see, that's what Christmas is all about because when God created mankind, when He created an Adam and Eve, the Bible says that, that he, he formed Adam uh, by, by putting together the dirt or the dust of the ground into the form of a man, and then He breathed the ruah or the breath, and in Hebrew, ruah can mean breath or spirit, the breath of life into Adam, and Adam opens his eyes, and the first thing that he ever sees is the face of his creator. And then when sin enters the world, then Adam and Eve are cut off from God, and they are distanced from God. And all throughout the Old Testament, a sacrificial system is created to to almost appease or cover your sins. And God is in the Holy of Holies. He's in this other place. But then, at Christmas... When Jesus is born, the Word becomes flesh, and God, once again, puts a face on, and that you and I, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that we can come face-to-face with our Creator again, and that is the only legitimate place that we find hope. And so the reason that we're talking about hope throughout this Christmas season is nothing exposes our misplaced hope like Christmas. Here, let me just, let me just give you a little, uh, a little warning. You are going to be disappointed again this Christmas. It's coming. It is coming. You remember that feeling that you get when all the presents are open and you're like, is that it? Yeah, that's it. It's over. All right? And you have all these expectations that this year is going to be the perfect Christmas. It's not. It is not. Your kids are still not going to get along. And they're going to be so unappreciative of all the things that you got them. And your family, they're your family. All right? That's why you don't live in their town anymore. That's just true. All right? All of those things. You're still not going to get along with your in-laws. You can never get her the right present, no matter how many presents you get. And you're really going to be disappointed when your American Express bill shows up in January, okay? You will be let down. Now, here's the thing. When we put our hope in these things and they let us down, the letdown is actually a gift from God. It's His grace and mercy to remind us that the things of this earth cannot fully and finally satisfy Romans chapter 1 says it's the wrath of God that he would turn us over to our own desires. And so what we want to do in this Christmas season and series today, at least, is I want to ask you the question, where do you put your hope? So if you've got your Bibles, John chapter 8, back up one verse to chapter 7, verse 53. It's very short. It says, it says they went, to, they went each to his own house. They were leaving this thing called the festival or the feast of the booths. Um, God had established all these parties that you had to have if you were an Orthodox Jew. So we have a good God. He's into parties. He had to have all these different parties all the time. This was one of the biggest ones. Chapter 8, verse 1. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. And the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. Jesus was an irresistible teacher. Even if you didn't believe everything he said or didn't like what he stood for, people were just attracted to hear the truth and grace in which he taught. 
Verse 3, And the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? So the reason I want to look at this is because in this event, it's not a story, it's not a fairy tale, it's an actual event. In this event, what we're going to see is, is three different groups of people placing their hopes in things that cannot fully and finally satisfy. So the question, again, that I want to deal with today is where do you put your hope? Where do you put your hope? Now, <clears throat> if you've been around church, you know one of the first things that people put their hope into or the one of the things the preacher's always going to talk about is this, is that we have a tendency to put our hope in money right? Now, we spent the last five weeks talking about this and before all things, so I'm not going to spend much time on it, but, but my hope for you is that you would take the exit to freedom out of the cul-de-sac of stupidity, and it's not that stuff is stupid, it's putting your hope in stuff is stupid because it will always let you down. Pastor Stone said this uh, last week in his sermon, and by the way, if you want to get me a Christmas present, uh, go and listen to Stone's podcast. He did an incredible job of laying the foundation that the unexpected hope in Jesus was that the king of kings would show up on this earth as a servant as rolled out in Philippians chapter 2. Please go listen to that. Here's one of the things that he said there. He said that you can grab all the trophies that this world has to offer and still all of us lay in the coffin empty-handed. That's just true. And so we all know people, you know other people, not us, put their hope in the, the shiny things of this world, okay? Um, another thing people put their hope in is an accomplishment. We do. We put our hope in accomplishment. As soon as I graduate, then, as soon as I can get into that college, oh, then, as soon as I can get into grad school, as soon as I can get that job, as soon as I can get that promotion, we put our hope in accomplishment. The best example I know of this is Michael Jordan. You know, Michael Jordan, when he's in the seventh grade, he got cut from the JV basketball team. Did you know that? Can you imagine what an idiot that coach feels like the rest of his life, you know? Greatest basketball player of all time, not good enough for seventh grade basketball at my school, all right? And then Jordan says, if I could just make the varsity, and he does. And then I bet he goes, if I could just, if I could just make it in college, and he goes and plays at UNC. And then maybe if I could just be a pro, and he goes and plays for the Chicago Bulls. If I could just be a starter, and he was. If I could just win a championship, and he wins championship after championship after championship. If I could just be the best, and he's the best basketball player in the history of basketball. And then you know what he wants? If I could just hit a baseball. What? <laughs> God tells me a story after 9 o'clock. I don't know if it's true, but in his uh, minor league career, people were tossing in baseballs for him to sign, and somebody tosses a basketball, and Jordan goes, you know what, that season of my life is over. And he goes, no, I don't want you to sign it. i wondering if you could hit it. That's just true, okay? So, <laughs> you put your hope in accomplishment, and you go, oh, is this it? Some of you students, if you're a student here, some of you put your hope in your grades, let me just tell you this. Some of you put a little more hope there, right? You're trying a little harder. Study. Don't misquote me to mama and be like, well, Joby and Jesus said it don't matter. No, no, no. <laughs> Study as unto the Lord. But, man, when you make that thing king of everything, ask all the adults here. When's the last, sometime, when's the last time anybody asked you what your GPA was? No. Okay? And so you put your hope there, it will let you down. A lot of, a lot of you, not me, you'll see why, put your hope in what you look like. You look at me like, oh, obviously you don't, right. But some of you put your hope in what you look like. It literally is going to let you down. And you can tuck them back up in there, okay, but they're going to let you down again. That's going to happen over and over and over. It's just true. Now, I'm not saying you just neglect it. No, man, I mean, you ought to run a little bit, do some push-ups, die anyway, for sure. But 
When you put your hope there, it is going to let you down. Time and gravity are not your friends, people. Okay? And, and, and again, we, we can spend everything we have on what we look like. A lot of us, a lot of us put our hope in what other people think about us. We put our hope in others' opinions of us. And we think, it's like we take the keys of hope and we hand them out to everybody that, that, that we want to like us and say, man, when you treat me right, oh, then I'll be fully and finally satisfied. Look, they don't have the ability to. And even, even some of us are like, I don't care what anybody says until they say something about you that just hurts. You see, the Bible says, careless words stab like a sword. It's just true. And we don't intend to. See, that's the thing. Like, I know the verses. I know Galatians 1.10. Am, uh, am I now trying to please God or man? Because if I was seeking the approval of man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I know that, and still, yet, what you think about me matters to me. You see, it, well, one more. No, no, a bunch more. Here we go. Uh, one of the things we put our hope in is this. We put our hope in our kids. Put our hope in our kids. As if they're going to live out all the dreams we had for us. You don't believe me? Come to the ball field with me. And watch, watch the number of um, less than average athletic dads put all their hope in their less than average athletic kid. Oh, we can all get there in one second. Pastor friend of mine asked me one time very poignantly, hey, when you're out at the ball field, are you cheering for the first name or the last? Ooh. You see, here's the thing, man. We can heap this pressure upon our kids that they do not have the ability to sustain. And if you try to, you cannot fix you either by disciplining out of your kid what you don't like about you. It happens over and over and over. And so we build this little world that revolves all around them, and then we wonder why they act like they're the king of the world. It's because we're loaded them up with, with hope for our own fulfillment on our kids, and they will let you down. Some of you put your hope in your church. You put your hope in your church. And the reason is this, instead of asking the right question, do I meet Jesus face-to-face there, the question you ask is, does that organization give me what I want? That's why you're on your ninth one in the ninth month, because you're putting your hope in the wrong thing. This thing is all about Jesus. Some of you put your hope in your health. Listen, we're all going out. You realize this? It's cancer or a car crash. All of us are gone. I hope you get that. All right, Merry Christmas. It's just true. I had the incredible privilege this Thursday of going and sitting down at Mayo with this guy that's battling cancer. And, and, and by God's grace, he's used me and this guy's life over the last bunch of years in his walk with Jesus. And, and, um, and you know, and the doctors say it's not looking good. Praise God, the doctors don't have the last say. Jesus has the last say. But I'm sitting in there talking with this man who's fighting it out, okay? And with tears in his eyes, he goes, thank you, thank you, thank you for telling me about Jesus. Because of that, here's what I know. This is win-win because either I get better or I get better what he said that's not putting your hope in your physical body and here's what I told him I was like man this is incredible the crazy thing when you're a pastor you actually think you show up to like give the help and you get all the help that's what happens and I'm sitting with this guy and I said uh his name's Bob I said Mr. Bob listen I'll tell you what um your all of your your external circumstances are awful but deep inside you have a peace and most of the people I'll come face-to-face this weekend at our church, their external circumstances are awesome, and they want what you have. They want that peace. You see, that's putting your hope in the right thing. Now, as I was studying and praying and thinking through this about hope, 
I know this. If I were to ask you, okay, because you're varsity. Y'all are, we're 1122, okay? If I were to ask you, where do you put your hope? I know what you would say. You'd say the same thing you always say at church, Jesus. No matter what the question, your answer is Jesus, right? So what's brown, furry tail, eats acorns? Eh, sounds like a squirrel, but I'm going with Jesus. That, that's how we do. <laughs> and, and like me, I try to put my hope in Jesus over and over and over, but I think a lot of times hope is like a little kid learning to crawl. It just never stays put. If you're a parent, do you remember that? You're like, where'd the kid go? I promise I put him here. What is he doing over there? They just crawl away. And when you learn to crawl, the kids, they never crawl towards safety and security. They always crawl towards danger. It's like a magnet. The kid always crawls towards the pool, towards the kitchen and the sharp objects, towards the light socket. You ever notice that? They never, like, crawl to their room, to their crib. Now, some of you freaks put a leash on them and, like, you know, that's that's a level of counseling that's never going to fix that. You understand? But what you got to do is... uh, is you, what do you, you pick up the kid and you keep putting him back. You pick up the kid, you keep putting him back. You have to, because it crawls away. And I think very often, that's what our hope is. I don't think anybody in here would say, you know what, I'm putting my hope in money and accomplishment and expectations in my kids. I don't think we would intentionally do that. We try to put our hope in the right thing, in Jesus. And then, before you know it, by Tuesday, it's crawled over here in some other arena. Let me give you an example, okay? Every year, every year, I promise I'm not going to do this. And every year I do. Let me tell you where my hope goes. Okay. Can we just talk for a second? All right. Let me read it right here. Okay. It says this. Joby and the church of 1122. That's you. Okay. Praying for you. Go dogs. God bless. Mark Rick. That's the head coach of Miami right here. Okay. So. Now. Let me just tell you what I know. Okay. I know. I know it's just a game. I know. I know that they're children. They're 18 to 21-year-old children that couldn't even get into the college, especially the good ones, you know what I'm saying, but say they can play the game this well, all right? And I know it doesn't matter, and I know win, lose, whatever. I know all that stuff. And yet, what happens to me, and some of you too, is about August, I'm like, all right, man, I don't care. This year's going to be different. And then they start coming out with these hype videos, and I start watching them. And I start thinking, you know what? This might be our year. I'm, I'm just saying. I mean, this might be our year. Now, I know we don't have a quarterback and we play that Spanish ole defense, but other than that, I think, I mean, you don't know, man. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing that we all clearly know. We know this is the Lord's team. I think I've firmly established that over the last three years. Have I not? I mean, no cussing in the sermon, please. So, uh, I mean, everybody knows what the G stands for. Obviously, that's God, right? It's his team. The uh, recruiting slogan this year for Georgia is commit to the G, which is, some, this is, which is short for commit to Jesus, right, obviously. <laughs> Primary colors here, red and black. If you would turn in your Bible to the Gospels, what do you see? Red and black. Ain't no blue in my Bible, you know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> and some of you ask, well, if they're the Lord's team, why don't they win more? Did you not listen to Sermon Stone, uh, Stone's sermon last week where he said that God demonstrates his majesty in humility? You understand? So... We'll be first in heaven. Now, here's what happens. So I start to believe it. And I start to talk to some of you that feed it. And then the first game starts. And we play ULM. Which I know you don't know what that means. It's a powerhouse of a team where Duck Dynasty is from, all right? And we, me and some of my dear friends and our sons, we take a father-son trip there. And we take them between the hedges. And we go and we beat them by 100. 
and you think, whoo, we might be on to something, and then we play Troy. Now, they were a heck of an army 2,000 years ago, not, not too good of a team anymore, all right? And then we play South Carolina, and we hang it on them, and I think, whoo, baby, that's an SEC team, and then it turns out they're terrible. And if you're a Gamecock team, y'all are terrible, all right? And so, and then we're 4-0 going into Bama, and you know what I start thinking? This could be it. There, this could be it, and I believe, and I believe, and then what happens is during every game, me and Pastor Stone and Pastor Britt, we all text each other, and, and I, you cannot see the content of the text, all right? If you saw it, two of us would get fired. <laughs> Stone will be fine. I'll just tell you the truth. All right, me and Britt, all right, we're out. <laughs> and sure enough, what happens, man, because I think this is the year we beat Nick Satan, Saban, all right? This is it. And then we get handed to it. We ain't even talking about what happens here in Jacksonville. Nobody should be saying anything. Did y'all watch the game last night? I'm just saying, we're all in trouble. Get it? So here's what I know. If you said, do you put your hope in the Georgia Bulldogs? I'd go, no. But some Saturday in October, I am just thoroughly disappointed and go, how did it crawl over there again? On Thursday night after the service, this old boy comes up to me, a good Georgia fan, comes up to me. And he says, you know what, when I die, I'm going to have four Georgia linemen be my pallbearers. I was like, yeah, why is that? And he says, so they can let me down one last time. (laughs) (laughs) Now, so it happens to every single one of us. Every single one of us. We don't intend to put our hope there. We put it down in the right place, at the feet of the cross, and then over and over and over, he just crawls over to these other places. And not just in silly stuff like sports, but I mean in real places. You know, uh, uh, last week I said that, or Pastor Stone told us that this week we were going to let you know um, where we were at on the Before All Things initiative, right? And so um, you guys want to hear how we did? Good. So on Monday, I knew we were tabulating all the information, et cetera, and, and uh, Stacy Brown, our CFO, and her team, they were getting all the information in, and she told me, I'll tell you by 12 o'clock, and so uh, Lars Peterson and I are driving back from Woodbine, Georgia, after I had just written what I hope to be an incredible sermon on hope and where to put your hope, and I hadn't heard from Stacy yet, so I texted her, and I said, where are we at? And she said, well, we don't have all the information in, but it's not looking good, and she sent me a number and it was, it, was, it was off. And immediately, immediately, I thought, oh, no. And I tell Petey, and then he just starts talking, you know, because he's trying to be a good elder and be nice. He's like, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I, we just called the thing Before All Things. It's all about Jesus. And I just wrote a sermon that I'm preaching right now about hope. And in that moment, I, I literally got out my phone while I'm driving, don't do it. And I texted Gretchen, I feel like a failure. I feel like a failure. And in a second, your hope can go into, like, how you did in your job or how other people responded, that kind of thing. And I did all the right things externally. I prayed, I preached the gospel to myself, and I assured myself of the assurance of my salvation and all of that sort of stuff. And then about two hours later, Stacy texted me back and goes, hey, uh, there's a, we weren't calculating it right. We got all the information. You might want to call me because there's a new number, and it's really, really good. 
And after she told me that and told me the number, I texted Gretchen. I was like, I'm not a failure. I'm awesome. Okay? So... <laughs> Now, my experiences with the Lord, when I'm like, Jesus, I need your help. I'm drowning off, and he grabs me by the hand and says, I have you, my son, and just drags me down under there until I'm as desperate for him as I would be for a breath, and then he pulls me back up. I'm like, okay, because he's more concerned about my character than my comfort. And so, here's how we did, folks. You ready for this? Uh, You'll remember this is a two-year generosity initiative. That there are four major opportunities that God has given us. First and foremost, to continue to be a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. That means it's just over the next two years, the Before All Things Generosity Initiative funds our ongoing uh, mission and ministry, just like we always do. That we're also going to put down roots right here and buy Walmart and make, make this house a home. That we're going to plant the gospel in Bay Meadows on January 10th. And Stone said 1,500 of you are going, and I agree with him, okay? And that's exciting, and we're going to create jobs for families that's going to change their life and plant at least 100 churches around the world. And some things that we're excited about is there were 307 families that for the very first time they committed to give toward what God was doing here at the Church of 1122. Amen? That's cool. 307 brand new families. And also you remember, this is a very, very, very aggressive goal. That on a regular two-year run, uh, and our normal operating budget would represent about $13 million, and we were saying that we believe that God was leading us to $24 million. And I have some people like, how did you come up with that? Like, I was praying, and Jack Bauer was like, no, it's not, that's not how it goes, okay? It just has to do with what we believe that God was doing in our lives. And so, the total dollar amount over the next two years is this, $32,076,000. $277.94. Amen, 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 amen. God deserves all of the glory, all of the glory. And if you're wondering why are people excited, let me tell you why. Because God always fuels his dreams. God always funds God's plan, not our plans. And so we thought, God, this is what you're calling us to do. And he says, yes, I am, and even more, and even more. The Bible says that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. That doesn't just count individually, but also as a church. And if you'll remember, our number one goal was 100% participation, and we're not there yet. So if you have not participated, we want you to. And now you have to believe me that it's not about the dollars. It is not about the dollars, that Jesus doesn't need generosity from you, but he wants it for you, regardless of your financial situation. I had, a, I had a conversation with a guy on Thursday night, and he said, man, I would love to. We are deeply, deeply, deeply in debt, and we just can't do anything. I said, could you do $1 this year, and could you do $1 next year? He said, yeah, I could do that. I said, like, I'll give you the dollar, okay? But just fill the thing out so that you will be declaring, I want you in with us in prayer and in, in, in all the other things that we are doing here to declare that he is before all things. And while that number is very, very, very exciting, let me warn us all of this. Do not put your hope in us. The Bible says that God opposes the proud. You know what God's been doing with the church of 1122 for the last three years? His hand of favor has been upon us. 
If the 3,000 plus salvations don't convince you, maybe this would be just a little part of helping convince you that God, for whatever reason, I really don't know other than we make much of Him, that God has decided that through the ministry of the church of 1122, He is going to flex His own glory throughout our city and throughout the world. And the biggest thing we could do to mess that up is put hope in us. Us as a church, us as a staff, that is not what we're going to do. So even, we, we should clap and we should celebrate and how good is God and, and in a very positive way, way to go, Church of 1122. And don't ever once make it about us. It's always about the fact that Jesus is before all things. Amen? Amen. Now, back to the text. So, this woman, they bring this woman before the Pharisees and the, and the scribes. And the reason I want to look at it is this. They, they bring this woman before Jesus, and they ask this question because they're trying to trap him. Because either way, it's like a lose-lose scenario. If he says, yep, yeah, let's kill her, then, then he's in trouble with Rome because only Rome could execute uh, a capital punishment. And if they say, nah, let her go, then, then he's going to make all the Jewish people mad because he's saying, no, nah, we don't believe in the law of Moses. Okay? But the reason I want to look at it is through this lens of there are three groups of people or people here that have put their hope in the wrong thing. They've put their hope in the wrong thing, and they're going to be let down. The first one is this, is the woman. The woman puts her hope in a man. I mean, this woman puts her hope in a man. She puts her hope in this man who, we can tell by the text, is a coward and a liar. And let me just be honest, most are. Most men are. <laughs> hey, man, it's just true. Because it's true, because what this man is going to do is what a whole lot of men do, say whatever she wants to hear to get what he wants, and you know what he wants. And he's a coward, because in her time of greatest need, he is nowhere to be found. And you want to think this is some antiquated book with some fables and stories? You don't think there's some people in this place right now and all over our city and all over the world, especially women that are putting your hope in a man that is a coward, spineless, wimp, that will tell you whatever you want to hear to get what he wants, and then when you need him most, he's gone. It happens over and over and over. You don't think people put their, their hope in relationships today? Over and over and over. One of them, even if you're in a great relationship, one of the most freeing things that can help you as a married couple is to understand that you were not created to keep your, your spouse happy, but you were created to worship Jesus and love him, and your job is to create the kind of environment where they can do that then you can come along as a husband and help serve Jesus in, in helping your wife love Jesus and, and not the other way around. And so that's what she does. She puts her hope in this man. And now when she needs it most, he's gone. You see, so many times what we do in relationships is we take the keys to our hope and we hand them out to people in our lives, people that we love, and say, when you treat me perfectly, that's when I'll be fully and finally satisfied. And they don't even have the ability to. They can't. They can't. And it also just makes me scratch my head and ask the question, what happened to this woman in her life? What happened to this woman in her life when she was growing up and the experiences she had that she thought, that is my best option? That of all the other options in the world, I'm going to commit adultery with this man. You see, girls, you were valuable and you should be treated as valuable. The king died for you and will adopt you in as his daughter. Nobody treats you that way. And over and over and over, people take their hope 
And instead of putting it in the one that will never let them down, they put it in people that always do. So this woman, she puts her hope in relationship. How about the man? The man's not even here. You see, he puts his hope in, in a temporary, satisfying a temporary appetite, regardless of the cost to him and others. He says, you know what? This is what I want, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what I want with who I want, when I want, and you can't tell me what to do. He says, I am more, I am more into satisfying me now, regardless of the implications to you or my family. You see, that's why the Bible, anytime it talks about sexual immorality, it has a very short command. God says, flee. Not flirt, not be careful, not do whatever your heart wants. You see, Jesus said, out of the heart come all kind of evil desires. All kind of evil desires. That's why here at 1122, we try to lovingly tell you that we don't care how you feel. It, we don't care. It's not that we don't care that you feel or that you have feelings. We just don't want our feelings, our desires to be the Lord of our life. Because listen, every single one of us are oriented towards sexual sin. Every single one of us have desires away from God's best for us. And Jesus' command to us is flee, run away from that. Because it is a trap. The question is not, what do you feel like or what do you desire? The question is, is Jesus your Lord? And if you, are, if you are the boss of you, that means he's not the boss of you. For him to be Lord means you do what he says. And he says this for us. Because here's the thing about our appetites. All of our appetites, all of our appetites, no matter how much you feed them, they, they're not quenched. They just keep growing. Did Thanksgiving not teach you this? I mean, how many of us ate, ate you know, just ate, 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 and, you know, your wife's yoga pants busted all over the place, and you don't even have a belt any big enough anymore, right? It's just true. That's for the pilgrims, so you should do it. But that's what you do. You eat and eat and eat, and you're like, oh, my goodness, I am stuffed. In the third quarter of the Detroit game, we're back in the fridge. We're not even heating it up. We're just eating it out of the fridge. Oh, my God, so good. It's because our appetites have a very small vocabulary. Now, more. That's it. Now, more. And we live in a culture, we live in a culture that says you should feed your appetite. And if you don't, what is wrong with you? And the problem with that, that is a worldview. It's a very humanistic worldview. And then there is a biblical worldview that says, no, 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 no. God is actually for you. That God wants to be your Lord, not your own appetites. And so... The question is not, what do I want to do? The question is, who is my Lord? And this, this man, this man, he puts his hope in fulfilling a temporary desire. Then there's a third group of people here, the Pharisees, and they put their hope in, in religious rightness. They put their hope in religious rightness. We're right and you're wrong. Woman, you're wrong, and Jesus, you're wrong, and look how right we are. That's called self-righteousness. They have declared themselves righteous. Now, here's the, here's the thing with self-righteousness. The only way to declare yourself self-righteous is you got to know what everybody else is doing. you got to snoop around. It, the Bible says that this woman was caught in the act of adultery. How? Because they're snooping around, looking in windows, and trying to find somebody doing something wrong so they can point out that they don't do that wrong. You find yourself scrolling through Facebook looking for somebody else's sin, guess which one you're struggling with? Declaring ourselves self-righteous. You see, because what I've got to be able to do is say, you are bad compared to me. Look how bad this person is. And that's why, that's why they bring her there. By the way, it doesn't take very long here in Jacksonville to find somebody that's had that kind of experience at a church, is it? 
that has that kind of experience at a church where they showed up trying to meet Jesus face to face, but instead what they got was a bunch of people telling them how bad they are and how they need to try harder. And so, then this woman, she comes face to face with Jesus. And what we find here is that she finds an unexpected hope. She was expecting death, and she finds an unexpected hope. Pick it up in verse 6. It says, this they said to test him. In other words, they said, uh, all right, Jesus, we caught this woman in adultery. What do you say we, we do with her? And they said that to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against Jesus. And Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, what did he write? Well, everybody knows he wrote WWJD, right? Is that probably what he wrote? All right, give me a little hermeneutical license here, all right? The Bible's over there. It doesn't say this. I'm just guessing. What if, what if he started writing down the names of all the Pharisees and scribes there, okay? And not only did he write out their names, you know, all of them, Zerubbabel and, and Mephibosheth and Ted, they're all there, all right? And he just wrote down there. How do you know my name? He's Jesus, all right? He just writes down names. And then kind of like a multiple choice over next to it in the dirt, he starts writing down all the sins that they have committed that based on the Old Testament were punishable by death. You know, there's even some theologians that think maybe the reason the man's not there is because the man was one of the scribes or Pharisees that did this to trap the woman. Maybe. And he writes them all down. And, and you say, well, where in the world do you come up with this? Jeremiah 17, 13 says this, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the dirt, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of the living water, as, a, as opposed to written in the Lamb's book of life. All of our names are going to be written somewhere. It's either going to be written in the dirt or it's going to be written in the Lamb's book of life. What if that's what he did? This big multiple choice thing. And then he stands up, verse 7, and they continued to ask him, and he stood up and he said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Maybe, maybe he goes, hey, all right, y'all want to start the judgment line? You want to start throwing rocks at all the sinners? All right, well, here's exhibit A. You see, Church of 1122, this is not a place to throw stones. This is not a place to throw stones at sinners. If we start doing that, i got to take the first one because I am the biggest sinner in the room. And so he says, all right, all the perfect people, y'all go first. By the way, he's the only perfect one there. In verse 8, and once more, he bit down and he wrote on the ground. And you think, what did he write? I think he wrote WWJJD. Watch what Jesus just did. That's what he wrote, okay? Because <laughs> when he says it, all right, perfect people, you go first. The woman, she probably thinks these are religious men in religious garb. They are holier than thou. They are perfect, and I am not. I'm nothing. And they've got some kind of special connection with God. And I think in that moment, she expected to be hit with a rock. Why? Because that's what she got every single time she bumped into religious people so far. Which is, honestly, folks, that's why a whole lot of people quit going to church. Because they show up to a place to come face-to-face -face with Jesus, and instead, they, they, they find themselves in the firing squad. And so she's, she's getting ready for the first rock to come. And Jesus is writing more stuff on the ground. Verse 9, it says, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. You know why? Because they're always the smarter ones. They get it. They're like, uh-oh. If this is judgment day, we're in trouble. We're out of here. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and he said to her, listen to this, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, then neither do I condemn you. 
See, Jesus is full of grace, full of grace, getting what she, she did not expect at all. Romans 8.1 says it this way, Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This, the church of 11.22, is a place where there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the reason why is because when Jesus went to the cross, he took all the condemnation. He took all the stones. When he died on the cross, it was because God made him who was without sin to be sin for us that we would be made his righteousness. And so if you feel condemnation, that can never come from the Heavenly Father. Only the Holy Spirit can convict, but there is no condemnation. Now, can I tell you why I think he makes this so explicit in this category? Because we're talking here about sexual sin. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Bible says that all sins a man commit are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. In other words, sex is not just a physical act. It, there's something supernatural about it. And when people sin sexually or are sinned against sexually, there's something, there's something at an internal level that is just hard to shake. Every single person I know that's ever come up to me like at the end of a service and say, well, you don't know what I've done. I could never be forgiven of that. It's almost always sexual sin, always. And we know, we know, remember back in our First John series, uh, Give Love a Try, we talked about that Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. That word means a payment that satisfies. So I think a lot of us can begin to get our mind around the fact that Jesus has paid for our sin. But there's another word that, that's explicit in the gospel, and it's this. It's expiation. And expiation means that we have been cleansed from our sin. That our sin has been expunged from us, and we are no longer dirty. Can you imagine what this woman feels like? See, I was reading about a pastor that I know that pastors a church out on the West Coast, and he was talking with this woman that had come out of the pornography industry. She had been abused as a little girl. She grows up. She goes into the porn industry. She can't figure out how to get out of it, and she's attending this church, and she's coming to know Jesus. And the pastor says, why do you do this to yourself? How in the world can you live in that world? How do you go back to it over and over again? And her words are this, I'm a dirty girl. I do dirty things. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is that if you confess your sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In this moment, Jesus is eyeball to eyeball with this woman that nobody else would look at in the eye and say, you are not dirty. The blood of Jesus makes you clean. So not only does Jesus cleanse the sins that, that we have done, but even the ones that have been committed against us. And that was not what she was expecting. She was expecting condemnation and she gets unadulterated grace upon grace upon grace that's why this is a movement for all people regardless of what you've done regardless of what you are doing regardless of what you struggle with regardless of what you want to do then you are invited not because i give out the invitations but because jesus does now and i would say this if you've ever been beat up at a church and had rocks thrown at you on behalf of the church, not that I have any, you know, it's not like I'm the Pope of church or anything, but I would say to you, I am so sorry. That is not why Jesus created the church, and that was not his hope or desire. That, that this is a safe place for you, regardless of who you are. And regardless of what you think I think about you, let me tell you that his grace is sufficient for you. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, these days... This is where most people want a period. 
Oh, man, let's just stop right there, sing a song, have a big hug, and I'll go home. The problem is Jesus doesn't stop there. That pesky Jesus, he'll get you, won't he? And so he keeps going. He says, so nobody condemns you, neither do I condemn you. And then he says this, now go, and from now on, sin no more. You see, last week, Pastor Stone rightly said that we've got to lead the conversation with love. Yes and amen. But to love means that you're full of grace and full of truth. Why? Because Jesus is love, and Jesus is full of grace and truth. Not 50-50, not half grace and half truth. That'll get you in trouble, but full of 100%, you can't have any more grace, and full of 100%, you can't get any more truth. And so he looks at this woman, he does not pat her on the head and be like, oh, it'll be okay. He doesn't. You see, to love somebody is to encounter them with grace and truth. Now, grace without truth is just coddling sin on its way to hell. But truth without grace is just pointing out where everybody screwed up and saying, and you don't get another chance. You see, what Jesus, is, he does both grace and truth because she had sinned. Adultery is a sin. So he doesn't say, now go on and leave your life of poor decisions. He doesn't say, you're, you're a mistaker and you need a life coach. Here's three steps. No, he says, repent is what this word means. It's a Bible word. It just means change direction. You, you were going in your own direction and that didn't work. In. So now it's time to go in a new direction in the direction that God has for you. So he says, leave your life of sin. And so, here at the Church of 1122, under the authority of the Word of God, we want to encounter every single person with love. That means full of grace and full of truth. That's why we lovingly say, hey, you're wretched, black-hearted sinner. It's actually worse than you think. That's why Jesus had to die. That's how bad my sin was. My sin was so bad that Jesus died. And his love for us is so big that he chose to die. That's what it means to be full of grace and truth. And when it comes to sexual sin, look, the Bible is very, very clear that, that sex is a gift for married people. You want to know if we serve a good God? He invented sex. I don't know exactly how it worked, but sometime in eternity past, he was like, I got an idea. And an angel was like, another rainbow boss? He was like, it's better than a rainbow. Okay, you understand? Like, he made it up. And he gave it as a gift. It's a good gift. In the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman for one lifetime. And anything outside of that is outside of God's will for us. Okay? Anything. It's a big old junk drawer that the Bible calls porneo, sexual immorality. And it is a gift. In fact, think about this. Just think. Let's just say for the last 200 years, every single human on planet Earth had obeyed the seventh commandment. Don't commit adultery. Okay? And the only people that were having sex was a husband and his wife. Okay? And that was it. Do you think our world would be a better place? I mean, think about it. Divorce rates go down. Abortion goes down. There's no such thing as sexually transmitted diseases. Thousands of people are still alive. Those kinds of things because God, the creator, knows what he's doing when he gives this gift. And so it would not be loving for me to not tell you the truth. Rick Warren says this. I don't know if you know Rick Warren. He pastors this little country church out in California. Maybe you've heard of it. He says this. He says, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear them or hate them. It's crazy. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. And see, what this woman finds in the face of Jesus is grace no one condemns you. And the truth, now leave your life of sin. You see, our job 
at the church of 1122 is to just bring people to the feet of Jesus so they can experience that unexpected hope that is grace and truth. You see, we are a movement for all people, but it doesn't stop there. We're not just a movement for all people to everybody get in here and just, what we do now? That's a state fair, you know? Everybody shows up with no purpose. That's what it is. But we are a movement for all people to do something. We're going somewhere to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus. That means, that means as you discover that grace and truth and you deepen, you begin to abide in him and he abides in you, then you get to, you get to experience the grace to sustain your life and the truth to point it towards him. See, here's the point. Is that the reason, the reason that you put your hope in Jesus is because he is full of grace and truth. The truth to change your life and the grace to sustain it. The grace to give you another chance. And so, what about you? Where are you putting your hope? You see, the only legitimate place to put your hope in this hopeless world is in Jesus. And what we, our job is as a church is to bring people to the feet of Jesus, not to try to trap them, but so that he can help them escape the trap that they're already in. You see, Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 7. He kind of he lays out these two options on the table. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. He is talking about putting your hope and faith and trust in Jesus. Verse 28, he goes, or here's another option, okay? And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. That means they put their hope in all the other things in this world that will not fully and finally satisfy. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Not if the storms come. So where do you put your hope? Where do you put your hope? I think there are some of you in the room right now, some of you that for the very first time, the scales have fallen off of your eyes and you've realized that you've been putting your hope in things that cannot sustain you and that today, for the very first time, you could be as close to Jesus as that woman was that day and you could experience his grace and you could experience his truth and you could put your hope in him and he will never, ever, ever let you down. And in just a second, I want to give you the opportunity to do that. People in every service we've had so far have been surrendering their life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. But then I want to talk to the rest of us that would say, you know what, I put my hope in Jesus a long time ago, but if I'm honest, if I'm honest, and I rarely am, but if I'm honest, it, it just crawls over to these other places. I want every single person to get out your respond card. Here's what I want to do. Every single person to get them out. If you choose not to respond, that's fine, but get out the respond card. For those of you who are ready to actually be real with Jesus, let me just assure you, the fake you is doing just fine. Okay, you look great. See you next week. But for those of you that are ready to be real in your relationship with Christ, and you would say, well, you know what? I mean, I try to put my, my hope in Jesus, but dang it, it just crawls over here. It crawls over here to accomplishments. It crawls over here to other people's opinion. It crawls over here to my marriage. It crawls over there to my kids. It crawls away from me over and over and over. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to confess. I want you to, on this response card, under where it says pray, I want you to write it down. My hope has crawled to whatever it is, accomplishment, success, finances. And if you're like, well, I don't know where it crawled to, what has let you down the most? The thing that lets you down the most is typically where you're putting your hope. It could be a person. It could be something. It could be your own accomplishments. Here's the thing. You know what it is. You already know what it is. 
Amen? If you want to put your name on it, you can, but you don't have to. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. The band's going to come out, and they're going to sing a song that we haven't sung before. So they're going to just sing it over us. And we're going to leave the lights up so you can see, and you can spend some time writing this down. And then when you are ready, then you're going to bring these cards up and drop them uh, in, these, in these boxes right up here. And sanctuary, you too. And here's why. You can put your name if you want to, but you don't have to. Jesus knows your name. Our staff is going on staff retreat tomorrow. And tomorrow night, we're going to take every one of these cards. And as a staff, we're going to gather together, and we're going to pray over them with a passion that would freak you out if you saw it in real life. You know why? Because we love you. We love you. Not just what you think about me and us, but we love you enough to go on behalf of you before the Lord and beg that you would experience the grace of God in your life to understand that whatever that struggle with, he's already, he's already paid the price and the performance trap is over because it's finished. And we love you enough that you would hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's ways of doing life are just better than our own way. Don't miss this opportunity. When you walk out of these doors, your life's going to get so busy that you might not be this close with Jesus all week long. Not because there's anything special about this place, but for the last hour you've been leaning in like crazy. And you write it down. God, I, my, my hope tends to crawl too so that we can be praying for you in this Christmas season that you could come face to face with the only one that can actually give hope in this hopeless world. And his name's Jesus. Would you please bow your head and close your eyes? If you were here today and you were ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, if you were ready to experience the grace and the truth of Jesus, the unexpected hope found only in Jesus, and maybe you've put your hope in all kind of other stuff, in being good or going to church, or maybe you thought you were so bad that there was no hope for you. That's not true. But today, you were ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. Just tell him. Tell him right now. Say, Jesus, I put my hope in you. And if that's you, would you just raise your hand where you are? Would you say, Jesus, here I am. I surrender my life to you. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, I pray for every single person that's hearing this message. God, I, I praise you that salvation is in this place. <clears throat> Not by anything that I have said, but because the Holy Spirit in this moment is invading lives. And that men and women and students, even in this moment, God, are being saved, surrendering to you. And God, I thank you that what they find is an, a cold drink of grace and a healthy dose of truth because you love us and you are full of grace and truth. And God, I pray for the people, the Christians, the people that have, have put their hope in you sometime in the past, but over and over and over again, we look down and our hope has crawled into the temporary things of this world. God, thank you that you let us realize that the temporary will not satisfy so that we could turn our heart's affections to you and you alone. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So again, what we're going to do, you sit right there, you take as much time as you need to fill this thing out, and as the band begins to sing, you're going to come and drop them here, or you can drop them in our giving boxes that are around the room. This will be also be the time that we respond by bringing our tithes and offerings, our first and our best, because he loved us first by giving us his best, not to condemn, but to save us through him. Let us respond.